in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 as we uh, continue this very, uh, uh, at least to me, a very fascinating look at the, uh, the Gospel, the Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 17 through 24. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. So most of you know the name John Newton. Um, John Newton wrote perhaps the most famous, famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. It's a good song. It's still relevant today. So you might know uh, John Newton because uh, of his uh, great hymn that he wrote. Perhaps you even know that John Newton was the pastor of William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist who, who really spearheaded the... Uh, the cessation of the slave trade in Britain. And John Newton was William Wilberforce's pastor. Here's something that maybe you don't know about Mr. Wilber or about Mr. Newton is that John Newton was crazily, insanely, madly over the top in love with his wife, Polly. John Newton loved his wife, Polly. And I think she loved him as well. In fact, I think that in some of their writings, it seems like they wrestled with the idea of, Polly, are you an idol to me? Is our relationship idolatrous? We so love one another that perhaps it's even getting in the way of our, of, of our relationship with Christ. In other words, John just loved Polly. And in fact, towards the end of his life, um, John Newton published a book, and it was really just a series of letters that he had written to his life over their 40-plus uh, years of marriage. And uh, I haven't read much of it, but it, sounds, uh, it definitely sounds like a worthwhile read. But it wasn't always received too well, because one of John Newton's friends came to him after the publication of this book of letters, love letters to his wife, and he chastised John and said, you know, this book, John, is going to make all of us Christians in Britain look bad. Because our wives are going to read this and they're going to wonder how come you don't love me like John loves Polly. The other thing about their relationship, and I don't know how to put this real sensitively, but from what I understand, and perhaps this is so foreign to us in culture, that though John loved Polly with all of his being, from what I understand, um, she wasn't the most fetching woman. Her looks were probably mm, not way up there. So usually people say, well, you know, maybe she's smart. Well, she wasn't particularly smart either. I'm not saying that she was like dumb, but she just, she didn't excel in, in, in appearance or in, in beauty or in brains. And yet John just loved her. He's, his experience was with her were so so amazing. 
She brought him such great joy. She was his source. Other than Christ, she was his source of rejoicing. And I guess maybe I bring all that up to ask you, what brings you joy? What, what causes you to rejoice? Probably the thing that you write about, probably the thing you talk about, probably the thing you dream about and daydream about, those are probably the things that bring you the greatest joy. And so today we are going to talk about this theme of rejoicing. And it's important for us because as we consider the Gospel of Luke, Joy is one of the major themes. So as we've looked at Luke, some of the themes we've looked at, Luke is very interested in the Holy Spirit. That's one of the big, the main characteristics of the book of Luke. Luke is also very concerned with prayer, especially the prayers of Jesus. So we've talked about those two things, that Luke focuses on the Holy Spirit, Luke focuses on on Jesus' prayer. But here's one of the things that perhaps we haven't discussed, and that is Luke's gospel is filled with joy. Is the, the word joy and the word rejoicing is used more in the Gospel of Luke than any other of the Gospels. And remember how Luke begins with a bunch of songs. Mary's song, Zechariah's song, Simeon's song. Um, uh, so it's, it's a book that is filled with music. It's filled with rejoicing. And today we are going to continue and pick up that theme of joy that Luke gives us. And the the the... The main context is about 72 missionaries who have been sent out. They have been sent and commissioned by Jesus to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send more uh, workers into the field, that they have been sent into the field to heal and to preach uh, the kingdom of God. And that's kind of the big picture of where we've been. And so hopefully we're kind of all on the same page. But let me give you just a quick preview of where I hope to go today. And so we're going to see today the joyful return of these missionaries from successful ministry. And then Jesus is going to share one of the, uh, or three reasons for rejoicing. They come back rejoicing from successful ministry. And Jesus is going to describe for them three reasons they ought to be rejoicing. And the first one is they ought to be rejoicing in salvation. They ought to be rejoicing, number two, in God's sovereign grace. And number three, they ought to be rejoicing because they are blessed people. So with that, let's look at our text and see what God would teach us through his holy word. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And this ends the reading of God's holy word. And so this 
little section begins with these disciples who'd been sent out. They'd been sent out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. They'd been sent out in the authority of Jesus Christ. And now we come to an end where they have come back and they're returning and they're rejoicing that in, in the power that Christ had given them. They are rejoicing that, God, that Christ had given them authority over demons, that God had given them authority to heal, an authority that had been given to them by Jesus. They are rejoicing that they are sharing in the power of Christ. This is the only the right thing to do. I mean, we, we go out on missions and, and we come back and we start talking about the great things that God has done. We are rejoicing because God has done miraculous things. Sometimes we just see God doing such tremendous things. All you can do is Rejoice, And oftentimes we come back to the church and we give a report and we share what great things that God has done. And here these disciples, these missionaries, these evangelists have come back after being in the field, going into the various towns and seeing that even supernatural powers are subject to them because of Christ. They're coming back rejoicing. Man, you can't even believe this. People oppressed by... By, by demons, and, and they're subject to us, and they go, and they do what we tell them to do. I would rejoice as well. And Jesus gives this very interesting response. I always get impressed by the way Jesus responds. because He responds differently than I would, and I guess that, that's expected. We're quite a distance apart. But instead of him saying, man, that's really amazing. Or I told you, I told you if you just believed all that would work out. He doesn't go there. He says, I saw Satan falling like lightning. What an interesting response. I saw Satan. Jesus, demons are subject to us. My expectation is, that's awesome. Or of course they are. You went out in my name. Something like that. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority over scorpions and serpents. And not one of you have, and, I've, and all of you have been protected. That's his response, folks. In the coming of the Son of God, the powers of darkness are yield. The arch enemy of humanity has been knocked off his perch. And these people, these missionaries, have gone out in the authority of Christ proclaiming the light of the gospel. I think a couple of things are going on. First of all, with the coming of the Son of God, Satan has been knocked off his, throne, his perch of power. The second thing I think Luke is doing is he is setting us up for the, the book of Acts where the gospel goes forth into the world. So here, the gospel, the light of the gospel is going to the regions of Samaria and per, perhaps into the area just across from the Jordan River. But there is going to come a time after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon the people of God and the light of the gospel will go out and it will not be hindered by the prince of the power of the air, by the ruler of darkness, but the gospel of the kingdom of light will go forth. And here, I saw Satan fall. The Son of God has come. His power has now been been overcome. The strong man has been bound. The kingdom of God is here. And Satan is now subject to those who are following 
in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Satan no longer can hinder the spread of the gospel. Jesus, you can't believe what just happened. Demons are subject to us in your name. I saw him fall. He has now been kicked out. His power has now been restructured. I'm the Lord of all. I'm the King of all. And he has no authority to hinder the going forth of the light of the gospel. And I all this is underscored by the authority over serpents and scorpions. I, I think there's Exodus language there just as the people came out of Egypt and they were protected and they were um, not hindered by, by, uh, by this aspect, this evil aspect of creation or at least what we associate with an evil aspect of creation. Uh, I, this is certainly not Jesus saying, you know, you get to pick up snakes and handle snakes and scorpions. We're not turning into that kind of church. Don't worry. We will not become. Yeah, amen. So, so I don't think that's, that's what's going on here. He's, he's simply saying that by my authority, you have been utterly protected. I sent you out. You went in my authority. Serpents and scorpions and any other harmful thing has not hurt you. I have watched over you and you have gone out in my name and by the authority of my name and nothing has hindered you. Of course you should be rejoicing. But then he says this. This is the awesome thing. Don't rejoice in that. Now, I don't think he's, this is a prohibition against that. I think this is just kind of a literary device. It's a comparison. If, if you want something to rejoice in, let me give you something that's so amazing that it makes that pale in comparison. If you think casting out demons and doing miracles is awesome, I'm going to give you something that is so awesome that it makes that seem like nothing. Don't rejoice in this. Rejoice in what I'm about to tell you. Rejoice. Not so much that I've given you power over the natural or even over the supernatural. That would be normal. But there's something greater to rejoice in. Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. That is said in the contrary. I don't know about you, but when we pray, and, and sometimes we have opportunity to pray, and we see God doing miracles, we are going to rejoice. We're going to celebrate. Jesus says there's something even greater than that, and that the greater thing is that you have received salvation. Your names are written in heaven. That's what I want you to rejoice in. Salvation, you've been converted. Your name is now in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is on the census of heaven. Rejoice in that. Folks, I want you to understand the importance and the centrality of miracles in the ministry of Christ and that He's given some authority to His church. And we, we rejoice in miracles. I, I recall a number of Wednesday nights we've prayed for people and then the next Wednesday the person comes back and says, Remember we prayed last week? Here's what God did and we rejoice. I also want to caution or temper that, that miracles do not equal salvation. But Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name and didn't we do all of these great things in your name? And Jesus turns to them and says, I never knew you. What do we rejoice in? We rejoice that God does know us. That our names are written in the book of life, in the census of heaven. This idea that your name is written, this has the idea 
Um, it's often used in, in, to speak of a list of a public register or a census. My census uh, picture didn't show up very well, but that's a, that's a picture of a census. And that you are registered as citizens in God's kingdom. Rejoice in that, that God has inscribed your name on the roll of heaven. Rejoice. And now I'm going to say something. If you think that's good, I'm going to say something else. And I'm going to do what they tell you in preacher school never to do. But I ignored most of that stuff, so... Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This idea of being written has to do with being enrolled in the census, that your names have been written on the census of heaven. But I I want to probe just a little bit deeper and note that the way that this is formatted is that it talks about an action that occurred in the past and it has ongoing effects and continuing results. In other words, rejoice that sometime in the past God wrote your name and included you as a citizen of heaven and those and it is still written on the census and it will continue to remain on the census book of heaven. Folks, rejoice. Rejoice that your name God God included your name in the census. I don't know, sometime in the past and that your name is still written in that book, and that your name will remain there. It is a certainty. Oh, and there's one other thing that we should note about this. You didn't do it. This is a a passive verb. You had nothing to do with it. God is the actor in this event. Rejoice that God looked down from heaven, had mercy on you, included your name on the census. It's still written there, and it ain't going anywhere. Rejoice, Jesus says. You want to rejoice in miracles? You want to rejoice in healings? You want to rejoice in the supernatural? You ought to until you learn of something even greater, that your names have been written by God in heaven and it's there to stay. Rejoice! Rejoice that you are personally known by God and your eternal presence before Him is certain. Rejoice. Satan has been cast down from heaven and your name has been written in the book of heaven. Rejoice. He is known Satan has been removed from his perch in heaven and you've been made a citizen of heaven. That's what I want you to rejoice in. So Jesus gives us the first reason to rejoice. You've been saved. Jesus now goes on to another reason to rejoice. In that same hour, he rejoiced. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. You know, this is really unique to Luke. Actually, it's pretty unique to the Gospels. It's the only place in the Gospel where we see Jesus actively rejoicing. So I suppose if it's the place where we see Jesus, I mean, we, we see him concerned, we see him com- having compassion, we see him um, in a, a variety, ha- displaying a number of emotions, but here we see Jesus actively rejoicing. And so when we see Jesus actively rejoicing, I suppose it's worth our time to, to ask, what causes Jesus to rejoice? If he's rejoicing, I wonder what caused his rejoicing. So he's rejoicing now in the Holy Spirit, and he's rejoicing this. Here's his prayer. Listen to this. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. 
So he is rejoicing in God's gracious will or that God's good pleasure, that it was God's good pleasure to bestow his salvation upon other people. God's plans. This is spirit directed prayer. It is a spirit directed joy. And Jesus rejoices in God's grace. God's plans and purposes that he reveals at the appointed time to his chosen people. The gospel that was attended with power, it was hidden from one group but revealed to another. What brings Jesus joy? Sovereign grace that saves, brings joy to Jesus. Sovereign grace is well-pleasing in the sight of the Father. I praise you, Father, that you've hidden these mysteries of the kingdom from the wise and the understanding, but instead you've revealed them to children. And this idea of children here, wise and understanding, Jesus is not, this is, God is not anti-intellectual. The contrast here, usually when we see this idea of the wise and the understanding, it is, it's usually a reference to those who are wise in their own thinking. They are trusting in their own wisdom. They are trusting in their own intellect. And instead, God reaches down and reveals his sovereign, his plan to those who have no claim upon him. Who don't think that somehow, well, because of my intellect, because of my brilliance, because of my, my, my understanding of things, God should love me. No, God is extending his sovereign grace to those the world would never dream of, befitting, of having such honor and such a gift. The contrast then is against those who would trust in their own reason or knowledge for salvation. In other words, God's grace humbles the proud. God's self-revelation is the result of his good pleasure. It is the result of his gracious will. In other words, God, God's pleasure reaches down to those who have no claim upon him. They have nothing to offer him. They have nothing to offer him but need. And he gives them all that is necessary to become citizens of heaven. Folks, I want you to understand, if you are part of God's kingdom, it is because of God's gracious will. It is because God has sovereignly bestowed his will to you. God has reached down and said, I've written your name in the census of heaven. Jesus praises the Father for the manner in which he brings salvation. He not only praises the Father for salvation, but the manner in which he brings it. Because the way that God brings salvation is in a, is in a manner that no man would have dreamed of. He brings it to the unwise and the unseeing and to the lowly and to those who have no claim upon Jesus or upon his kingdom and, and to those who somehow think that because of their worth, because of their merit, because of their goodness, because of their intellect, because of their education, because of their economic standing, because of where they were born, because of some external thing, have some claim upon God, God says, no, I bring it to those who have no claim whatsoever. And that doesn't mean you can't be an intellect. Paul was an intellect. And God stripped him of everything. And Paul says, I count that all but loss. That's nothing. 
for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And so Jesus praises the Father for the manner in which he brings salvation. This is the, the manner in which God brings salvation should humble us. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom, you should be utterly and completely humbled. What did I do to get such a great gift? Why is my name on that census? What did I do? What did I think? How did I gain such riches? It should cause us to fall to our knees. It should cause us to gather every Sunday as the church of God, every Lord's Day, to come together and celebrate with like-minded individuals to say hallelujah, rejoice in the God who has done things that I can't even begin to comprehend. Because I look at my life, and you maybe you look at your life, and you're like going, what, what in the world did he see? Why in the world would I be concluded on that census? God's sovereign grace and Jesus is rejoicing in grace. And it's not just any sovereign grace. Here we see Jesus is rejoicing in the sovereign grace in election. I want you to understand a few things here. We are utterly and completely dependent upon God to reveal himself. Utterly and completely dependent for God to reveal himself. I remember we were doing, uh, I told the story many times, but we were doing some ministry um, in Los Angeles. And, and the first place we went was down on Hollywood Boulevard. There, there's a lot of brokenness there. But it's amazing how well received the gospel was. We had many conversations. We had opportunity to connect people with churches and just broken, broken people. And then one day during that trip, we went and shared the gospel near the UCLA campus. Everybody looks like they walked out of the magazine. The women all looked like they walked out of Vogue and the men looked like they walked out of GQ. They all could be on magazine covers. Nobody wanted to hear the gospel. We just hit a wall. We are utterly and completely dependent upon God to reveal himself to us. And verse 22 highlights here the relationship between the Father and the Son. Here we see in verse 22, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one who knows the Son except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. The only one who knows the Son is the Father. And the only one who knows the Father is the Son. Do you see the relationship there? And then Jesus says this absolutely astounding statement. And, and, to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Nobody knows the Father. Nobody knows the Father. My people I met in on the UCLA campus says, well, I've looked and I've searched and, and I haven't found, you know, I, I don't think it's reasonable to come to a conclusion. Uh, they've done their searching. 
They've looked. But nobody comes to the Father because nobody knows who the Father is and nobody knows who the Son is unless it is revealed to them. You need to understand that the Christian faith is a revealed faith. It is not a discovered faith. You will not find it in a book and you will not find it amongst philosophers. You will not find it um, in some uh, ultimate guru who sits on a mountain. You will not find it from me standing up here in a pulpit. It can only be, I can explain some things to you, but unless God reveals it to you, you will never, ever know the truth. It is a revealed Our faith is a revealed faith. Most philosophers begin with man and try to get to God. And that's the utter folly because you will never get to the triune God. Never. Without revelation, you will never come to the triune God. Now that I've driven that point home, let me show you through God's word what I mean by that. By nature, you and I are spiritually blind. Look at this passage of text. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The the spiritual things, the natural person will never understand the things of the Spirit of God because you're... They're spiritually discerned. And you're not able to understand them. You cannot comprehend them. A sinner who does not have the Holy Spirit cannot perceive the things of God. When Jesus gives eternal life to those the Father has given them that we see in John 17, 2, he imparts the capacity to understand spiritual things and to know God. No one can understand the Father unless the Son reveals him. In other words, salvation is not the result of human effort, human will, human reason, or human intellect. It is the result of a sovereign God who makes himself known. Probably every single person in here, whether you accept the things that I'm saying or not, because there are many who do not, But even if you do, everybody has wrestled with this truth. These are the plain passages of Scripture. No one can understand the things of God unless divinely revealed. But let me just share with you some Scriptures, and perhaps it will help us to understand the first one that we we would consider the most common, or one that we read that is very common, is in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where John writes this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh. I'm sorry, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. John chapter 6, verse 65. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. James chapter 118. The first few words are my emphasis. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits to his creatures. Of his creatures, by of his own will, he brought us forth. I, his own will. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Ephesians 1, 11. I don't think I put that up there. 
Ephesians 1.11, In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his wills. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's God's doing. Not of yourself. Not as a result of works. So that no one can boast. God gets all honor and all glory in salvation. God is the one who wrote your name in heaven. God is the one who made himself known to you. And Jesus rejoices in the fact that God is sovereign in this act. All praise and all glory now go to our great God in heaven. No one can boast. If you're sitting here today and you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you have no room for boasting. You cannot say to somebody, oh, well, look at that person. You are only where you are by God's grace. And it should cause you to rejoice. Jesus rejoiced over it. And then one other thing that Jesus says that causes rejoicing in this. And then turning to his disciples, he said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Being blessed is a cause of rejoicing. These disciples, and by extension, you and I are blessed. And you are blessed because you see and hear things that the spiritual giants of the past could only long for. Kings and prophets have no com- had no comprehension of the things you and I take for granted. The redemption found in Messiah. That there, there is... N- No more shedding of blood of bulls and goats that there's been one perfect sacrifice who is seated in heaven making intercession for us. That he is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. These were things that kings and prophets longed to look for. You know and understand these things. You know and understand things that people like Moses and Abraham never even comprehended. I'll take this one step further. She rejoiced. This is a bless. You are blessed. Ailey is two and a half years old. Emmy, she's four, five, six, six. Maya's eleven. Maya's eleven. Ten. Two-and-a-half-year-old Eileen knows things about Messiah that Moses never knew. Six-year-old Emmy knows things about Jesus that King David could only long for. And 11-year-old Maya, 10-year-old Maya, don't make them grow up too fast, right? 10-year-old Maya knows things about Christ that Isaiah only dreamed of. Folks, we're blessed. We are blessed. We're blessed because our names are written in heaven. We are blessed because it is by God's utter power that he revealed himself to us. And we are blessed because we have a knowledge of the Messiah, of King Jesus, that people only in the Old Testament only long to have. Our youngest have a clearer understanding of God's redemptive plan than all of the Old Testament saints combined. What an awesome thought. You're blessed. 
And if you're blessed, we should rejoice. I'll conclude here. The message today is just very simple. The message today is rejoice. So today when somebody asks you, how are you doing? (laughs) Where's your mind going to go? It should rejoice. Because you're going to talk about the things that are important to you. John Newton talked about his wife, Polly. He loved her. He was, she was the source of his joy and his rejoicing. And he talked about her and wrote letters about her. And shamed all the men in Britain. He rejoiced because she was so great. But he rejoiced even greater in his Savior. Rejoice. Why? Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice. Because your spiritual blindness has been removed by God's sovereign grace. Rejoice because you are blessed and you have a knowledge of God that people in the past would have longed to have had. So with that, let's spend a few moments in just quiet reflection and ask the Lord to reveal things to us and speak to us. Remind us of things, convict us of things, encourage us, admonish us. Or maybe we can spend a few moments in quiet reflection just rejoicing in the great things that God has done. Our Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks that you have included us in your work. We rejoice that you have given us authority to do great things, but even more so, Father, that you have saved us according to your awesome work. So we thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.